Hi, and welcome to Gonzarola. My name is Brian Bentley. This is a podcast about music, movies, comedy, and all forms of excessive consumption. And today we're going to be talking to Al Cooper. And it's a thrill for me personally to be talking to a guy that I've followed since I was a child throughout the arc of his musical career. Most of you will know Al as the legendary studio sideman for Bob Dylan. Uh, he joined the Blues Project as their keyboardist in 1965. He left the band shortly before their gig at the Monterey Pop Festival in 67. Al then formed Blood, Sweat & Tears in 67. He left uh, due to creative differences in 68 after the release of the group's first album, Child is the Father to the Man. Al next recorded the supergroup uh, session album, Super Session, with Mike Bloomfield and Stephen Stills in 1968. And he has played on hundreds of records, including The Rolling Stones, B.B. King, The Who, The Jimi Hendrix Experience, Alice Cooper, and Cream. And in 1972, he signed the original lineup for the band Leonard Skinner and produced their first three albums. So, Al, uh, I want to welcome you and ask you if maybe you feel like uh, you're the higher evolved zealot of rock and roll, considering everywhere you've been. Well, I only feel it when I celebrate my birthdays. You're a legendary keyboard player, but you began as a guitar player, and your career started off at an extremely young age. Uh, at, I believe at the age of 14, you had a band called The Royal Teens and a hit single called Short Shorts. So you've been in the public eye for forever. How has that shaped your life? Do you think that's made you different than other people? Oh, definitely. Uh, I think it's a good thing because I had focus so early and I have only let go of that focus because of my uh, health uh, a few years ago. You started out as a songwriter, as a, as you know, a lot of great songwriters did, as a for a publishing company. So, uh, you and two other writers wrote "This Diamond Ring" for Gary Lewis and the Playboys. I assume that structure you got from working for the publishing company really helped you a lot in the songwriting end of things. Well, I I wrote with um, two other guys. They wrote the words, and uh, that that was helpful. And uh, and the three of us respected each other, and so that was very helpful. And we did a lot of work together, and we wrote a lot of songs. And uh, we came to work every day and, and wrote songs instead of, you know, sitting behind a desk or answering the phone. Yeah, it's easy when you don't have that kind of structure to say, well... You know, I'm going to write a song today. Oh, you know, maybe I'll go to the beach or something. But when you have to come in, sit at a desk, you know, I had the same experience as a advertising copywriter. I went from freelance to in-house and I found it was a lot easier to write in-house because there weren't as many distractions. Give me three great ads by 3 p.m. You know, so I'm sure that was uh, something that helped you. And you had a leg up on guys that are just messing around with their guitars, trying to come up with chords. Well, actually in the, community I was in, there were a lot more people doing what, what we were doing. Right. So, uh, you know, and we all were friends. It, it wasn't, it was competitive, but only musically. Did you meet the people that you composed for? Did you hang out with Gary Lewis? No, no, rarely did we meet the people. We were too busy. Did you uh, know Carol King and that group? Who? Carol King and that group. Did you know them? Did you ever run into them? The Brill Building group? Uh, well, they weren't in the Brill Building. The Brill Building is 1619 Broadway. And the building that we were all in was at 1650 Broadway. And that's what it was called. Didn't have a subtitle. And uh, so they were there. But they were on a different floor than we were on. So the only way, you know, we could have bumped into each other is if they came to our floor and we went to their floor, which I don't think we did. How did you meet Bob Dylan and get, as a 21-year-old, get the gig to play on um, 
Highway 61 and Blonde on Blonde, which I believe was the first double LP from a major artist. And of course, the organ on Like a Rolling Stone, which Rolling Stone magazine rated <clears throat> the greatest rock song of all time. Can you just talk a little bit about like how you got to break that big and what happened? Well, this is a, a common story. I mean, in that I've told this story more times than anything else in my career. Uh, so I'll try and cut it down. Uh, but um, I was a big Bob Dylan fan. And <clears throat> uh, to, to help me out at that, I was very good friends with the gentleman who produced him, Tom Wilson, at that time. And uh, he was a black man. Uh, I think I went to Harvard and uh, was very involved in the jazz world. Uh, however, he he could deal with other musics. So he inherited Dylan from uh, uh, Hammond, John Hammond, mm -hmm. who, who signed Dylan. And uh, they they sort of threw John Hammond out and gave Dylan to Tom Wilson. What kind of guy was Tom? Because he doesn't get like the pub or the publicity that some other producers get. Do you oh, any... I disagree. I don't know if the average person knows who he is compared to some of the huge... Well, does the average person listen to Bob Dylan? I mean, I, I know who he is. Does and... the average person... Uh, I mean, did people listen to Frank Zappa? Yeah. Well, these are people that he worked with in uh, very important times in their career. Simon and Garfunkel. So, you know, he's not just Bob Dylan. He's known in the industry, um, and but he's not like, people don't talk about him like George Martin or, you know, somebody else like that. And I think it's kind of sad because... He was obviously extremely talented, and he had to have a, a solid, even temperament, I would imagine, to deal with uh, Bob at the time. Would, would you say he was laid back, or would you say he was intense? Well, Bob pretty much ran everything. He was, he was assisting Bob in Bob getting his thing across. Right. When you guys did the electric versions of those songs, and you you know, electrified blonde on blonde. And it was a, it was definitely a step in a new direction for Dylan. I don't think we did that. I think, uh, he wanted to record his album in Nashville and he brought me and Robbie Robertson with him, I think for comfort level, because I don't think he knew any of the other musicians. We were all strangers in town. You know, Bob made that transition to Robbie and the Hawks, and he took him on that European tour. And, <clears throat> you know, that's pretty well documented that people uh, were having a hard time handling that new sound. Was that a tour you were offered, or did you just, uh, was he already pretty much wanting to go? Well, there, the was, there was a tour that was uh, half and half. There was uh, Harvey Brooks and myself, and Robbie and Levon. That was uh, the Forest Hills uh, Stadium, the, uh, the Hollywood Bowl. And then he let Harvey and I go and brought in the rest of the band. I assume that uh, you've seen all that footage from the European tour where the audience is just is just completely freaking out. I assume that that was uh, something you were kind of glad you missed. Well, I mean, we were booed at Newport. Yeah. You only played three songs, right? In 65, was it? Y yeah. Yeah. And um, I don't remember, we had a tough time at Forest Hills also. Yeah, expectations of audiences can get to be, uh, and I think that Dylan was obviously pushing those buttons to uh, make a point that, you know, he wasn't going to be boxed in um, with any particular sound. Nor was he going to um, uh, pay any attention to the booze. I didn't know this, but you were an A&R man at Columbia? Yes. How'd that happen, and who, who did you work with? 
I I went in and asked for the job because I knew a lot of people up there through Tom Wilson. I had to. Uh, my audience was with um, Clive Davis, who was the head, and uh, and the first thing I had brought in. Before I started, well, I mean, I got the job, and then I was starting uh, two weeks after that. So for a week of those two weeks, <clears throat> I went to England, and I uh, bought clothing and LPs. That was my, uh, I, I had never been before, and I also uh, got contacted by the Rolling Stones and and played with them while I was there that week. I assume that's I, when you, you did. You can't always get what you want. Yes, I assume that's the French horn intro. You know, I. I no, heard... no, it actually, I put that on later. Oh, okay. okay. I was playing uh, piano and organ. Did you run into Nicky Hopkins or were you guys like competing for gigs and stuff like that? I didn't run into him. There, there would have been accidental if it happened. This was another thing I was sort of not aware of, but I did some research on this, that you were the stage manager at Monterey Pop. Assistant stage manager. Assistant manager. Did you work all three of those days? Yes, and uh, and a month before. Was there a certain um, logic or political thing about how you put together the order of bands? Because I remember Pete Townsend... And I had thing. nothing to... We had nothing to do with that. Okay, that was um, the... Uh, John Phillips and, and uh, yeah. Lou Adler. Um, yeah. Was there tension that I've read somewhere? There was tension between the San Francisco contingent, like the dead and the airplane, and they felt that L.A. was kind of commercial and there was sort of a sense of... Uh, That's bullshit. Is, um, all these musicians uh, had played dates together because of Bill Graham. It was not unusual for them to know each other. And this was just an offshoot of uh, what Bill Graham had done. You were friends and neighbors, or you ran into Hendrix a lot in New York and uh, and jammed with him? Um, well, we became friends at Monterey. As a matter of fact, um, he asked me to play on like a Rolling Stone at Monterey, but Lou Adler wouldn't let me. Why is that? Because I was working. I know the door. The doors were not there. I guess they had a number one album at the time, so that was kind of interesting. They passed that up. I had nothing to do with the booking. Did you happen to witness the Birds meltdown on stage with Crosby quitting the band basically to play with CS? And no, there were there were things I I was more more busy with than. Um, what was going on on stage? So, so what, I mean, I, I didn't get to uh, I didn't get to see that much. Yeah, yeah. You did a solo set there, though, right? I did. And uh, that's available basically on bootleg. I think I think there's official Monterey albums and films, and they're on both of those. The jam sessions that you described in one of the interviews that I that I saw came across sounded amazing. You guys would go into places like I guess what would become Electric Ladyland or it was Electric Ladyland, and you said that you'd start playing and you'd leave, walk out the door, and the sun would be coming up. That wasn't Electric Ladyland. That was where Electric Ladyland was later built. It was a club, and then um, the club closed. And they built a studio there. So, I mean, who would be a would there be a typical group of guys that you would jam with, and and what would you do? Just cut cover songs, or just start riffing in a key, and people just start improvising? Yeah, it was whatever happened. Um, and this was uh, very common in the three big clubs, which was the Cafe of Go Go, the Scene. And uh, whatever Electric Lady Lamb was called. Those were the big jam clubs. And so you'd go there uh, during whoever was 
playings last bit. And then when everybody left, there were people that stayed. And then they locked the doors, and uh, we did play till the sun came up. Wow. But, it, but in those three places, not just uh, electrically. Then. In 1968, uh, you put together the Super Session record, and... Uh brought in Mike Bloomfield and I from what I hear he was not feeling well so he, he only did like one day and then Steve Stills uh came in what was it like working with Steven Stills I, I hear that he was uh you know like a one man band could play a million instruments uh was that a good experience for you uh I I didn't know about him playing a million instruments uh, I I asked him to come be a guitar player and I believe that's what he did on Supercession. Right. So I, d I didn't know about any of that stuff. I, I knew him enough that I could call him. And they were putting together Crosby, Stills, and Nash at the time. I don't think anybody knew about it. But that's what was happening, and I knew that. So I uh, called him and asked him if he was interested in coming to the studio for one night. And he said, sure. And he came and he played. You had a tremendous, <clears throat> I, I don't know, know if it's the third, fourth, fifth, or sixth act in your career, but uh, in 1972, thereabouts, I believe you were living in Atlanta at the time, and uh, you went to a local club. The original Leonard Skinner was playing for like a week's residency or something. And, That's what the, well, I mean, I hung out at that club when I lived there. Mm -hmm. And uh, if, if you played that club, you played for a week. And uh, that's the only way you could play that club. And so I, when I could, I would go there every night and uh, listen, especially the first night, to see if I heard you know, a band that I liked. And you were looking, you said, for a great three-chord band. I was looking for uh, something to produce. There was I mean, I could have just as easily have heard a horn band and was interested in that. The funny thing is, is I find that Skinner has, had, has this ability to reach out and sort of jump all kinds of genre boundaries. They have fans that would not normally be into um, that kind of, uh, I, I don't want to say Southern rock, but it's definitely roots rock, blues rock. You know, they started out doing uh, an homage almost to uh, Free, you know, I mean, a lot of a lot of early Free songs. Well, that was, that's my favorite band of all time. Yeah, I love them. So it was no accident that I liked Leonard Skinner. When you saw Leonard Skinner, were you kind of with that first night? Were you kind of saying, you know, holy shit, this is like free only? No, I didn't really put the free thing together, and uh, and I, I I got to hear them play three sets a night for a week. So I heard everything, and by the third night, I went and sat in with them. I heard about the. Uh... Can you play this in C sharp, Al? That was a funny uh, story. I'm sure you could, obviously. <laughs> yeah, that wasn't the problem. I laughed when he said that. <laughs> Had you heard that single that they put out in 68 called Need All My Friends? It was kind of circulating around. Uh, I heard it much later. Yeah. What made a guy from Brooklyn move to Atlanta? Was it the musical? The well, Rich, I was born Richards? in Brooklyn. I lived in Queens, by the way. But was it the richness of the of the musical culture down there? Was it the authenticity? Was Actually, um, I, I worked in the studio there, and I really liked the studio. So that was the first thing. And, um, and then I was uh, sniffing around in another place uh, for uh, things to produce. When you heard Freebird for the first time, or when you, when I, I think you said that you saw him, you said, they're pretty good. And you saw him the next night, you said, hey, you guys are really good. And then, you know, it just kept going from there. Did you immediately see the commercial um, potential in the band? I wouldn't say that 
that Freebird was unique for what they were doing. I liked it all. Ronnie Van Zandt could write songs. He had charisma and presence. And uh, so at the time... Well, was... I, never, I never really heard a band like that. And they, remember, they didn't have a keyboard player yet. Yeah. When did you make the decision that you were going to try to uh, sign them to Sounds of the South, the record label? The third you... night that I heard them. Uh-huh. Um, and, and I made the offer. They had been around for four or five years, and things were getting kind of, I wouldn't say desperate, but they weren't really going where they wanted to go. So in some ways, there's a chance that had you not heard them and seen the potential and signed them, that they would have been good, but never, you never would have had a record like Pronounced that has been called one of the greatest production jobs, you know, of all time. I wanted to talk a little bit about the uh, the recording process of this. When you guys went in the studio to record uh, Pronounced, uh, did they show up with finished work that they would just deliver to you, or was there a lot of pounding away, you know? To... No, there was maybe one or two songs that weren't completely uh, done. In numerous interviews, you said that they had this ability to play the exact same thing, the exact same way, over and over, and that... It wasn't an ability. It was what they did. But it was unusual, right? Yes, I'd never seen it before. So when you, when you started to record them, I assume that made it quite easy in the process. If you had to go back and do a retake, you'd say, pick it up from, you know, bar or whatever, and they would just... You know, like a machine almost. You know, we punched in. We didn't make the whole band play. Your background as a music songwriter, that professional background, did you, in effect, ghostwrite parts of those of those albums, or was your job just to no, capture? Not really. I just made changes. Well, there's that story about the recording of Simple Man. Apparently, at that session, Ronnie walked you out to your car more like he escorted you and said hey Al we'll get back to you and I didn't uh, I didn't like it as much as the other songs yeah what was what was your uh, I just thought you know uh, th that they might have had other stuff that was better it's an incredibly simple song it's C, C G A minor three chords and they're all simple songs in a lot of ways <laughs> but you ended up coming back and playing organ on that yeah. Did it change? Did, did the song change from when you weren't too thrilled with it till when you played on it, or was it basically the same Not song? Not that I wasn't too thrilled with it. it. It just was not as good as the other stuff. What was it like working with, with Ronnie in the studio? Um, he has, you know, his... His reputation goes all over the place. I mean, Ed King said that he was incredibly supportive and a great band leader. And just the inspiration, the you know, the blood, sweat and tears, you will, if, if it kept that band going. But he also could be very physically intimidating and violent. I mean, did you feel uncomfortable at, at any time working with him or feel like... No. No, because I didn't play games with them. How? And they didn't play games with me. It was like if they wanted something, they said so. And if I wanted something, I said so. So they, they trusted you implicitly, pretty much. I don't think so. I wasn't afraid to say anything to them, and they weren't afraid to say anything to me. Well, that's what, yeah, that's the way it should be. I mean... It was a tough situation because after the first album, the, the, they weren't finished with the songs when it was time to do the albums. And it was really bad on the third album. Nothing fancy you're talking about. Yeah. That was written pretty much on the road, and they didn't uh, do the Hell House rehearsal. It was written pretty much in the studio. Did you ever visit Hell House, their rehearsal space, or ever get a chance to check that place out? No. I was never... I, I went there once to see them play, uh, you know, the uh, the big concert hall in their hometown. Jacksonville. The first, yeah, the first time that they played, you know, like a really big place in, at home. Yeah, I, I wanted to, I wanted to see that. 
I have a funny story about something. I was at the Santa Monica Civic to see Rossington Collins band and they were playing Freebird and right in the middle of the, one of the guitar solos, the power went out, complete power failure, lights out, people kind of screaming, oh my God, you know, and, you know, right in the middle of the song. So Rossington Collins comes back about 15 minutes later, lights are on, everything's up, they count off. They go right back to the same friggin' note, same bar in the middle of the guitar solo as if there was never an interruption. They just picked it up like, and I think that's an example of just, just how tight these guys were. Uh, most bands have improvisation every night. This band had no improvisation whatsoever. Did you? Do you understand what I'm saying? That's what made them unique. If there was a guitar solo, they played it exactly the same. If there was a keyboard solo, they played it exactly the same. And that's how it was. And and I had never seen anybody do that before. You know, everyone's heard, or a lot of people have heard, the story of how um, Ed King contributed or brought Sweet Home Alabama to the studio. I assume when you heard that, it was like, how fast can I get these guys in to record them? Well, no, they came to me and said, we have a new song, uh, and and this is uh, before we went in to cut the second album. Uh, after the first album, I got them uh, the Who tour, where they opened for the Who. So their first tour they ever did was opening for the Who. And I went along on the tour and I mixed their sound to make sure that it was okay. I heard they got a great reception too. They're one of the first bands to get an encore that opened for The Who. Yeah. The story is that you had a test pressing and you ran into Pete Townsend in LA. I was working with MCA Records with my label. And Pete Townsend, The Who were on MCA. So... I was walking out of the building and I bumped into Townsend, who I knew uh, very well because uh, we played a, a, a 10 day show together when I was in the Blues Project in New York. And that's, that's where I met Townsend, that's where I met Clapton uh, at that show. And matter of fact, we shared a dressing room with Cream. Wow. The Blues Project. And and so uh, I, I had a relationship with Townsend. I also uh, uh, played on some Who records. Would you consider yourself a keyboardist and a guitar player in the same breath, or you would you say you're more of a keyboard player? Well, it, it's hard to say. I had... Um, I'm working on a record, a, a, a box set now. Oh, okay. Which is, uh, I don't know if we're going to be able to do it, but it's it's called Unreleased. And it has like a great deal of songs that I wrote that I made demos of that weren't necessarily... Uh, going to be on my albums. And uh, and so these are just lying around. And, uh, and, and a lot of them are very good. And I have the original demo of this diamond ring, which is really interesting. Mm. Wow. So that's uh, something um, that you're so, actually... So it's going to... That's the concept of what this box set is going to be. I heard something to the effect that uh, Bob Burns uh, was having some problems and they brought in Artemis to play on the third album, Artemis Pile. And well, actually, um, I, got, I was um, scoring a movie for somebody and uh, and the producer of the movie asked me if I would um, produce 
a track for another movie that he was doing. And he told me what the scene was that they wanted the uh, song in. And so I, I went to uh, Skinnerd and I said, um, I have an opportunity for you to uh, have a song in a Burt Reynolds movie. The Longest Yard, right? I believe so, yeah. And they were very excited, and they had this song, Artemis' first session with them, with me. And that song was Saturday Night Special. Yeah. That is one of the most badass bass riffs that I've ever heard, and uh, that's another Ed King song. I mean... Are, do you feel like a lot of people that Ed King was an incredible uh, positive influence on that band, especially in the studio? Well, he was the one I was closest to because um, he wasn't from Jacksonville. He was from L.A. And, and we, we got along quite well. He wasn't in the band when I heard them, when I signed them. And then, the, the, you know, we, we started recording and there he was. Yeah, he and uh, I guess he had played with the Strawberry Alarm Clock, and they had done yeah. something way back when. And he he knew Ronnie from back in the day, and they had sort of had an open invitation to uh, look him up if he ever got the chance. Yeah, so that was what that was about. So they wrote Saturday Night Special, and we went in to uh, record it. Just that track. So, and then I had to mix it so, so that they could put it in the longest yard. Uh, <clears throat> and when we were recording it, uh, uh, there's the intro, and then it goes into the first verse. And they're very different grooves. And so there's a drum fill between um, <clears throat> the intro and the first verse. When we were rehearsing it, I said, whoa, whoa, wait a second, something's wrong here. And the drum fill was in 5-4, but none of them knew what that was. They just learned the song, and uh, Artemis had played... <laughs> a fill that was five beats long instead of four. And I pointed it out to them and they said, listen, uh, I don't give a shit what you call it. We're using it. I said, I'm not telling you not to use it. I'm just telling you it's in 5-4 time. But they didn't know what 5-4 time was. Is that where it goes, dun 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 then there's this little thing and then they go into the first No, one. it's... Uh, Da, 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 da. And then there's a drum fill, and then it goes, bottom, bottom, yeah, bottom, bottom. So it's the drum fill between da 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 and bottom, bottom, like that. Yeah, yeah. No, I, I know, I know that song. I mean, and, and I, uh, <laughs> I, I just went, whoa, whoa, whoa. Wait a second. And and they just said, I don't give a shit what it is. That's what we're using. I said, no, that's fine. <laughs> <laughs> that was very humorous to me. How would you compare Artemis and Bob's drumming styles? Was it a challenge to try to... Uh, I heard that Artemis had a little trouble picking up Bob's feel on some of the, some of the tunes, so they actually toured with both drummers. I never saw them play with both drummers. I mean, I don't know about that. That was way after I was gone. Bob was killer on the on the kick drum. I mean, he had some great. Um, no, he was a very good drummer. Swamp music. The, the the kick drum on swamp music is just. But you have to you have to know that it was very tough to be in that band because uh, uh, Ronnie wrote most of the songs, and uh, and if you like added drums to them it had to he had to buy it and he was a very tough judge 
when you guys um did the uh second helping record um you had you already had sweet home alabama that was already in the can for uh that's like right a year the first single that you put out was i believe don't ask me no questions yes now it's always a sort of a it's almost like a poker game to try to figure out what order of singles to release you had Call Me the Breeze and Needle in the Spoon. You had songs that might be construed to be more commercial than Don't Ask Me No Questions, but I was curious if you released... I thought Don't Ask Me No Questions was a, 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 like kind of a Rolling Stones-ish uh, good single. But did it, did, it, did it do well or did it tank when it came out? It tanked. Yeah. So at that point, you went straight to Sweet Home Alabama and said, let's see how, they, how you know, so let's see him ignore this, right? And then it just exploded. I didn't want to put it out first because I didn't have anything to follow it with. Sometimes they'll, they'll do that. They'll put out a, a song that is a good song, but not their A-list to see how it goes. And if it gets well, sacrificed... Well, because you want to follow it with something. You produced the first three records, and then there was the famous Hell Tour, which was the tour uh, to support... Uh, nothing fancy, and things started to kind of the wheel started to come off. Did did you feel after that third record that you guys were kind of done, or was how did the transition? I knew we were done. You knew you were done. Was it? I didn't. I didn't particularly want to produce them anymore. Was that because they they kind of uh, screwed around too much with nothing fancy as far as not coming in prepared? Well, they. They took me to a studio they wanted to use, and they had an engineer they wanted to use, and the guy was terrible, and I had to put up with his shit, and uh, and it was like that. Well, that... it was a very bad experience, and they did. They only had half the songs written, so they had to write the songs in there as well. well it was what... a very bad experience. The third album. It was in a, a studio I didn't care for. Engineer was, for instance, the first day we were in the studio, we spent the entire day just getting the drums to sound right. And then I came in the next day and they had pulled down all the mics from the drums. So like 12 hours work, flushed down the toilet. At that point, uh, the band switched to Tom Dowd. Did you have an opinion about Give Me Back My Bullets? Was, did, did you like the sound of that record? It's I didn't understand that album. And I had a relationship with that guy. Which guy? The producer. Tom Dowd? Yeah. Uh-huh. He, uh, he recorded um, some of my songs with other bands. So he would come to me for material before Skinner. Right. It wasn't a good album. That's all. Maybe you know, and and you know, there was. It wasn't as good as the other ones because the material wasn't as good, and the production was different. You know. So there you go. in my opinion, it was the worst album they ever made. But it had nothing to do with that guy producing it particularly. Who produced the next album? Uh, the next album, well, the next studio, the next album was a live record, and then they did um, Street Survivors. And I'm not sure if they self-produced that record. I... No, they never self-produced. You know, here's something funny. Robert Criscow, the, the critic, wrote this. I'll just read you a brief thing here. Leonard Skinner, Give Me Back My Bullets, MCA 1976. Ronnie Van Zant's attraction has always been the way he gets his unreconstructed say. Unfortunately, the music could use some Yankee calculation. From Al Cooper of Forest Hills, who I figured was good for two hooks per album, and Ed King of New Jersey, the guitarist turned born againer, whose guitar fills carried a lot more zing than three do doing honeycuts. <laughs> so your 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 absence was definitely noticed. Well, I don't think it was my absence as much as um, the other stuff. 
I just didn't think it was a good album. And 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 I was rooting for them. I remember putting the record on a turntable and saying, Okay, knock me on my ass. Right. And then I was sitting there going, They're not knocking me on my ass. <laughs> Like I say, it, it is kind of muddy. Um, there's a lot. The bass, the drums. I only played it that one time. Yeah, the drums. The drums didn't have the definition. I I liked Ronnie's intensity on the vocals. I liked the song "Searching." Um, there's some good songs. I don't know anything about that album. I played it once and I never heard it again. Do, do you feel like the band, based on some of the comments that they've made over the years, do you feel that they didn't fully appreciate what you did for them? I have no idea. Because the next album was a very big album, maybe the maybe the biggest of their career. I interviewed Jan Uhelski, uh not too long ago, uh, the great writer and editor from Cream Magazine. She wrote a story where uh, Lester Bangs told her, um, you know, I don't want to talk to Skinner. Here's some questions. You know, can you go do the interview for me? So she went to interview Ronnie, and he had a, a very uh, strong impact on her. And at one point. He said he had a strong premonition that he knew he was not going to make 30. And to me, like I said, I followed the band in real time. And it seemed like they were just kind of messing around too much with that, the whole, you know, we're going to live our blues man image out and destroy this and punch each other out and drink under the table. Well, I have a, I have a copy of Ed King's book, which has never come out. Oh, really? Yeah. And boy, that is... <laughs> That really tells a story. Can you give us any, uh, since it's not out, can you give us any uh, interesting parts about it? No. <laughs> um, but do you think, from your dealings with Ronnie just alone in the studio, do you think that he was on a sort of a downward spiral and, and, and was, was self-destructing? Well, the third album was very tough to do, but it was mostly because they put most of their trust in the engineer it is one of the more unusual at least pairings if you're looking at who would produce skinner you would figure it'd be somebody like jimmy johnson or somebody you know it, it it's a very unusual thing for um somebody not from the south even though you were living in the south it just didn't but it worked i mean well it's who it's who heard him and knew what to do with them so you didn't in other words, the drop-off in quality, right, between the third and fourth record that you were speaking of, you don't think that had anything to do with the fact that you weren't around anymore? Well, I think that that however he produced the record was probably not the way to do it. I, I don't know if, you know, he was better or worse than me. He was different, though. I want to talk about your book, Backstage Passes, um, and which I read in high school, a hard, hardbound edition. It had the black cover and a shot of you. It's still out. It's being updated. Uh, it has been updated. It's still for sale on Amazon. You added a second title, um, Backstage Passes and Backstabbing Bastards. Who backstabbed you? I don't know. It just was a catchy title. <laughs> it, it's got a nice alliteration to it. It works well. I mean, you're a great writer, man. That book is one of the best, if not the best books ever written by a musician in real time talking about what happened. It's very well structured. It's uh, it's very illuminating. I know you spent a lot of time talking about the Blues Project and, and, and stuff. And I wanted to ask you about Mike Bloomfield for a minute. Uh, you guys, um, would, you, would you consider yourself at the time uh, musical collaborators and good friends or just one or the other? Um... together and we really enjoyed spending time together that was what got me to do super session i heard he was a, a really a chronic insomniac yes so am i i hear you i'm the same way would you say it's safe to say that he was a man who lived to play music and some of the other aspects of life were not as interesting to him, and therefore he struggled? No, he was a very intelligent person. 
Yeah, no, he was smart, but I that's, mean... That's, what, that's why I love spending time with him. Because we could talk about anything. It was interesting for both of us. What would you guys talk about? Anything. Literally. Well, you made a great combination in the studio, that's for sure. Um, yeah, but it, it was even better when we were just sitting around and not playing, just talking. I loved spending time with him. I really did. I went out of my way to spend time with him. I would just go up and visit him uh, when I lived in L.A. and he lived in San Francisco. I would just go up there for the weekend and, and uh, no business involved, just I, to uh, spend a couple of days with him. I just often wondered just what happened to him. Well, he was a very unusual person. Uh, there was nothing I could do about the bad things about him. So I didn't try to. I think I was, uh, I think I lived a better life than he did. It, this is something I wanted to ask you because you were, you had a lot of friends like Jimi Hendrix and a lot of people that didn't make it. And for whatever reason, their skills as musicians were one thing, but their ability to deal with life and, and the temptations of the road, that you seem to have an ability, an intellectual and internal stability that has has allowed you to sort of sidestep some of those pitfalls. Um, well, no, no, no. I, there's a, I know that I wrote about it in my book, but I got addicted to um, uh, Percocet, which is, you know, heroin of another kind. And, uh, and it nearly killed me. And I cold turkeyed, which was the worst experience of my entire life. What, what year was this about? I don't know. But I, uh, I went into a hotel room. And I did it there. So white knuckled it. Huh? White knuckled it? Yeah. And, and I didn't have anybody there with me because I was embarrassed. To live through that time and to actually make it was an accomplishment of itself. I mean, some of the people that... Oh, no, it was unbelievable. People don't understand what it's like now. Like, they don't understand. In the world we live in now where everything is supposed to be safe, I was a young guy and I was watching these, these heroes of mine, you know, Hendrix and Joplin and Morrison and all these people, just check out. And it seemed like the entire 70s, it just progressed to uh, people like Tommy Bolin, people like uh, the guitar player from Free, uh, Paul Kossuth, just just dropping like flies. And then my favorite band of all time. Yeah, yeah. And and, and then then Skinner's plane crash, which was somewhat of a. Um, I'm not going to say it was a, a dumbass move to be flying in that plane, but it was. You know, Aerosmith and I think Sticks had passed it up. It had all sorts of, half the gauges on the plane didn't work. And, you know, I, the crazy thing is if they'd gone another 200 yards, they could have landed the plane safely or safer than running into a bunch of trees. But it was literally, and then Terry Kath and all these other people. I just feel like anybody that can come out of that who wasn't like drug addled to the point like they were, you know, vegetable or dead was a success. So I, I just find it uh, amazing that the amount of work that you've done over the years to hook all these various bands up and do all these things, enable all these people to do their best work has been phenomenal. I think it, your legacy um, for that is one of the more interesting uh, parts about you and that you've been able to. Well, I got the drug thing out comparatively early. And so that helped. And you went on, of course, in the 70s to produce one of my favorite records, uh, the Tubes debut album, and particularly White Punks on Dope, which was this amazing multi-layered production job with a very sort of cheeky L.A. suburban drug humor thing to it. How was it working with that band? It was very tough. It was difficult. Um, but I believe I prevailed. 
I have to throw them out of the mix. I'm not sure what you mean by that. Well, you know the difference between recording and mixing? Oh, you had to throw them out of the mixing sessions? Yes. Yeah, yeah. Otherwise, the album uh, would have been a disaster. Oh, how it was much... like, make me louder, make me louder, make me louder. <laughs> it was like that. And I, I lost uh, the chance to produce them again. I mean, was White Punks on Dope, was that was that as a uh, labor-intensive song to put together? As a they all were. Yeah, yeah. They all were. That's why I signed them. Well, you did a great job on that record. I mean, it's... Uh... Well, it was, it was a lot of work. It was tough. And I wasn't going to blow it in the mix. Plus, I hired the most unlikely arranger. Because I had never heard music like this. And hey. so I went and got um, Dominic Frontieri, who I met at dinner one night, and asked him if he was interested in doing a, you know, a, a, a band that didn't sound like anything else. And, and I thought that he would be great to do the arrangements. And... Uh, and he did it, and we became very good friends. No, but I was involved with him very early. Who, Tom Petty? Yeah. Consulting, or what were you doing? Uh, playing. You played on his records? Uh, I have to think about that. When he first recorded, I can't remember the producer's name. Uh, I think I could, Danny Cordell? Yes, thank you. They recorded... Just him and Mike Campbell. That's all that that uh, there was. And uh, and Danny uh, hired other musicians, so he hired me. And he also the same thing with uh, Joe Cocker, which Danny did. I played on some Joe Cocker stuff early on. Wow. I mean, I just find it amazing what kind of musical skill it takes to just come into a session, you know, play for somebody you've maybe never even seen before or heard before, and then you just... No, that's mostly what I did. Yeah. Were you self-taught, I mean, as far as uh, musical theory goes and stuff, or did you did you just learn it? Pick I studied, but I was very young, and I also went to uh, college for two years, and, you know, majoring in music. So neither of those things hurt me. Did you did, when you were touring? Did you have to lug those huge Hammond organs around? I mean, of course not. Somebody else would, but <clears throat> no, no, they rent them. Oh, they rent them. Okay, yeah. Well, now they've got a they've got the Hammond that's supposed to sound is almost as good as the original Hammond, and it's a it's like the size of a weighs like twenty pounds. And well, then it couldn't. I don't know if it's any good or not. Well, they they claim to have sampled all the originals, you know, original tones and. Yeah, but still, there's nothing like a like a B three. There was a funny statement that you made in 1979, I believe, that uh, you were going to leave the country if Reagan became president. And I think you said the same thing with Trump in 2016. Did that ever happen in either case? I don't remember about Reagan. I know I would. I remember being in L.A. and having a police incident during Reagan, but not much else. I had a question about the Rock Bottom Remainders. Is that a that's a band of writers including uh, Dave Barry, Stephen King, Amy Tan, Amy Tan, and uh, Matt Groening. You still uh, jam with those guys? No, I, I, I've never seen him again since the tour. Were any of them any good? I know Dave Barry was supposed to be pretty good. No, they weren't. They were. <laughs> that's probably and that you, was the point. That's why you weren't. But I mean, it, it is. Was that just a publicity stunt? You know, get these writers together and do a tour? Or? No, it wasn't publicity. It was. Well, I mean, you know, there was publicity involved, but. Uh, they just wanted to do it. And I got that. And I thought it would be fun. And it was. And uh, 
you are currently the leader of uh, your own band, the Recuperators. Are you guys still actively gigging or playing? I can't play anymore. You can't play anymore. No, no I had um, um, brain surgery and back surgery. Mm. And the, the back surgery took me, uh, put me out of business. I had um, I had a bilateral laminectomy myself two years ago, um, and I have spinal stenosis. So, uh, it's uh, fortunately I'm not in. Or, or, do you have back pain, like chronic back pain? Uh, yeah. Yeah, I'm just curious because sometimes you know you. I can also have, have you know <clears throat> a lovely scar there. I, d I doubt you're going to be going sunbathing at any beach anytime soon, but, um, but yeah, the stars. No, I never did that anyway. With all the great acts that you jam with, the questions that I know you've been asked over and over again, and sometimes you ha it must feel like you know, you're know you a jukebox to answer these questions, but with with all the acts and the bands that you play with, are there any stories that you'd like to share or anything that, that you haven't told before about? No, everything's in the book. Everything's in the book. And it's a great book, by the way. And I did mention it is on Amazon. There was something called the Sphincter Session. And uh, <laughs> is that something uh, you'd rather leave behind you, no pun intended? or is, uh, I don't know what it is. Uh, I, apparently, a microphone was inserted in some guy's butt, and uh, you recorded uh, him tapping a drum beat on his stomach. It is yeah, in, I can't remember who it is it in the book. <laughs> or whether we, we actually did it. Yeah. Well, some of these things, you know, might have been something you thought you did, and then you think back on it. Did we actually? No, do no, 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 no. It was definitely discussed, but I don't know whether we did it or not. Well, I guess that there's a lot of downtime in the studio. I saw something funny: a pair of women's country boots called Freebird shoes, and they spell Freebird as one word. And I was thinking uh, maybe somebody should talk to MCA about that. I don't know. Kind of like. Well, I'm not gonna. <laughs> Get your Hey Jude sandals right here. Anyway, listen, Al, it's been great talking to you. I appreciate it. It's been uh, a challenge to get this thing wrangled together. And uh, they say good things come to those who wait. So uh, appreciate you spending the time to talk to me today. So what do you do? Do you, do you play this on the air or do you uh, transcribe it? I have a podcast. Well, that answers my question. Yeah, it's 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 a podcast that uh, to anyone listening out there, we have little problems with uh, Zoom. So what you're hearing is so old school analog, it's ridiculous. We are just recording straight off of a speakerphone. It doesn't actually sound too bad. I've got a Tascam uh, Pro recorder, which has got good quality sound. And uh, I just uh, want to thank you for more than anything else bringing Leonard Skinner to the world. And people are very, very appreciative of the job that you did, the patience that you had to have to, you know, soldier through that and get that they out. They have no idea. I, I'm sure they don't. Believe me, they don't. I mean, I would love to hear any crazy story you have about that because, like I said, I've read every book. that. No, there you is. haven't. Well, I've read a lot of I haven't read the Ed King's book. <laughs> Maybe. Well, that's the best one. Why did that never come out? Because he died. Yeah, I, that was a shock to me. Um, I didn't see him as, uh, I thought he was, you know, there's only one guy left, Gary, and he's had like six heart attacks and of the original band. But um, Ed, Ed did some great interviews, uh, some of those guitar geek interviews where they sit down and they ask you oh, what riffs he done. Well, watching. yeah, well, you know, he, he wasn't Southern. So he was way different than everybody else in that band. I, I still find it strange. I know there's a lot of regional regionalism and sort of prejudice against uh, Northerners, so to speak. Um, and uh, it's interesting. Would it be safe to say that uh, Gary and Ed were not big fans of each other? Gary and Ger Ed. Gary, yeah, Gary Rossington was a big fan of Bob Burns, and he... He kind of he and Ed were okay, I guess, but I'll t I'll tell you a story, but you have to turn the recorder off. Um. Okay. Hold on.
and I know that you can say okay. All right. My guest today has been Al Cooper. I guess it's safe to say this is a man who's given his life to rock and roll, and we're all richer for it. Al, I want to thank you for being here, taking the time to share this uh, amazing musical road trip that's been your life. And to the listeners out there, if you want to read the full Al Cooper story with a lot of great um, highlights, pick up Backstage Passes and Backstabbing Bastards. It's been updated continually, and it's available on Amazon right now. Al, thank you very much for being here today. No problem.